Welcome to Star Trek and the Jews, the monthly podcast that uses Trek to boldly explore the worlds of Jews and Judaism. Today I'm bringing you two very different interviews. The theme through both of them is transmission and preservation of oral histories, but the approaches are very different. Our Hebrew school homework today was the next-gen episode, The Inner Light. That's the Picard's flute one. It's an iconic story about a lifetime experienced in a moment, and the stories we choose to preserve when there's nothing else left to preserve. I hope you'll think about this episode as we go through our interviews today. Enjoy. Belay that order, number one. Red alert. Chava de Cordova is a Jewish educator, Talmudic scholar, future rabbi, neo-Hasid, and writer living in Providence, Rhode Island. She cut her teeth as a teacher founding Beit Midrash Behind Bars, an organization that created Jewish study opportunities for incarcerated people inside Washington state prisons. She co-founded Shel Ma'ala, an online first queer yeshiva, and co-hosts the world's first queer Talmud podcast, Chai, How Are You? Chava, welcome to Star Trek and the Jews. Thank you. Thank you. It's so good to be here. I, I'm really happy to have you because I have been listening to your podcast since um, pretty close to the beginning. And uh, it's just, a, it's wonderful to finally meet you. Wow. I'm so, I'm so flattered and honored. When I started the podcast, I didn't imagine that anyone, any stranger would listen to it. So to meet someone who's been listening to it from almost the beginning is a big honor. So uh, we ask all our guests this and answers run the whole spectrum. What is your Star Trek background and familiarity? I have a funny experience with Star Trek because I was sort of resistant to it my whole life. I grew up with a very Star Wars, Star Trek binary mindset. And one of my best friends is a huge Trekkie and... So I was always sort of like, oh, I'm not going to I'm not going to watch that. And she always had it on in the background. And slowly it just like <laughs> being around her Star Trek, like seeped into my brain. And then I started watching it independently of her. And so I've seen all of Voyager, all of Discovery and all of TNG a couple times and a little bit of TOS. But I still feel ignorant, even having seen that much material, which it says something about the volume and complication of the material. Yeah, there's a Talmudic element to it, too, of like, even if you think you've seen it all, you've never really, there's always another level to it. Right, right. And I was I was really drawn in by Voyager. That's what hooked me on Star Trek. The female characters in Voyager are like what sold me on the whole series. Yeah. So you host Chai, how are you? Can you tell us a little bit about your show? And I mentioned at the top that it is a queer Talmud podcast. What is queer Talmud study and what is, you know, special or different about it? So the show really started out of a practical concern. So at the beginning of, I guess the beginning of 2020, when COVID was just getting started, I also got very ill and lost my job because of that. And so I wanted to start a Patreon to give people an opportunity to help support me in that time. And my co-host, Michael, who I was dating at that time, they said they already had experience editing podcasts. So they were like, let's just make a podcast for your Patreon just as sort of a one-off thing. And we enjoyed making a podcast so much together that we decided to keep doing it. The world of Queer Talmud is sort of a, a funny and specific world. Queer Talmud really 
had its its origins seven years ago when Rabbi B'nai Lapi created Sfara, which is sort of the mm. initial queer yeshiva. And she pioneered this kind of pedagogical approach to Talmud that we call the Sfara method that has some really distinct qualities to it, like destabilizing the power dynamic of teacher and learner, empowering learners to become players in the tradition, working with texts in the original rather than using translation, and also being queer-centric. So all the spaces where those pedagogies happen are sort of centering queer experience. And over those now more than seven years, I guess, actually, since that time, that has developed into a whole subculture and a whole world of understandings of Talmud that is sort of, I think, becoming its own its own school, its own like distinct academic approach to the text. And so when I say it's a queer Talmud podcast, I broadly mean we are approaching Jewish texts with that lens and also just sort of like saying whatever we want on top of that. And that this idea of approaching Talmud through a new lens, even though the lens might be new, that doesn't seem like such a such a radical concept, does it? It's sort it's I, I guess my view of it is, is that it's a text that, you know, lends itself to being reinterpreted in that way. Right. It's kind of a, a historical cycle we go through. You know, the rabbis of the Talmud really took a new approach to understanding the tradition of the Torah. And then the generations after the rabbis of the Talmud, they looked back at the Talmud and reinterpreted it. And then, you know, every every new generation sort of looks back and earns the tradition to mean what they need it to mean in their own mm-hmm. time. I'm always... I'm fond of saying this. The main rule in Judaism is you can interpret anything to mean whatever you need it to mean, but you're not allowed to throw any material away. It all just has to be like accumulating over time. So you can't get rid of any Torah verses, but you can make them mean whatever you need to. (laughs) This month, uh, we're looking at the transmission of oral traditions. And there's a kind of Heisenberg uncertainty principle to any oral tradition where like, when you observe it, you change it. So in what ways do you think queer Talmud study and and maybe your work or maybe the, you know, the broader movement are changing the way the text might be seen in the future? I hope as the Spara method and queer Talmud world have grown and grown, we've developed different approaches to sort of famous pieces of Talmud that have almost become like normative in the subculture. So Mm. you will run into a text that has traditionally been understood to be about a minor point of sort of like medical law relating to Yom Kippur. And it'll turn into within the queer Talmud world, a text about like empowerment and disability justice. And I hope as the tradition continues into the future, this whole sort of parallel layer around the Talmud of queer normative and sort of justice-centered approaches to the text will build up. And then generations after us will look back at those and probably think that we were so regressive, just like we think the generations before us were. I am hoping it sort of pushes the window of radicality that we're willing to tolerate in Talmud study, like further and further onto the edge. I'm hoping we we broaden the window for what kinds of things are possible in the future that we can't even imagine now. How did you get started with this? What what motivated you to jump in? 
Oh, well, it's a funny story, really. I had not really devoted any thought to the Talmud at first. Um, I sort of came into my Judaism as an adult. I'm from a family that's ethnically Jewish, but I wasn't raised with any Judaism. So it's something I sort of claimed as an adult. And when I was first exploring it, I really reacted negatively to the Talmud because I found it to, the idea that a bunch of rabbis would be like telling me what to do was sort of like anathema to my very queer self. But this person who I've mentioned, Rabbi B'nai Lappi, she was on an episode of a famous Jewish podcast, Judaism Unbound, who I'm sure we've all listened to many episodes of. And faithfully enough, on that episode, she said some problematic stuff about trans and queer history. And in true, you know, earlier 2000s fashion, I called her out publicly on the internet, which feels more embarrassing now. But at the time, you know, I felt very cool. So she reached out to me personally, and we had a long process talking about that. And we're very good friends now. But she was like, you have to like come into the queer Talmud world. Queer Talmud world needs you. So she invited me to my first queer Talmud camp, uh, which is this sort of like big summer camp that Sfara puts on. And once I got into the Beit Midrash, once I got into the study hall and started really sinking my teeth into those texts, I was forever transformed. You know, I just find Really, the, the heart of the reason I study Talmud is hedonistic. I just really like it and enjoy it. And once I sort of found that visceral joy of like digging into the nitty gritty of a text, uh, I never turned back. I, I like that origin story. There's like <laughs> a, there's kind of a Talmudic quality to that too. Like a Reish Lakish, like a come in looking for a fight and come out a scholar. <laughs> Yes, I've told that story many times. And every time I come to appreciate it a little bit more and to appreciate like the sort of good leadership on Benet's part to be able to sort of transform that situation into a Talmudic dialogue rather than just like, a you know, just a fight. What are some things that have surprised you along the way? I think as I've delved deeper and deeper into this Talmud world, I've discovered that we spend a lot of time in Queer Talmud world and even on my show talking about the really obviously cool parts of Talmud. Like we talk about characters who seem trans in the Talmud, characters who seem queer. We talk about like these really empowering, fabulous moments that I like to refer to as like glitter bomb Talmud. It's a Talmud that's like very easy and digestible. And the further and further I went on my Talmud journey, the more I realized that as a subculture and as the Jewish people at large, if we're gonna shift the way that our tradition is handled in future generations, we have to go beyond the material that is sort of like easily digestible, easy to experience as queer mm. and into the like rough, ugly texts that are like sort of, I don't know, like repulsive to us now. Like we have to deal with, all of the tradition rather than just the sexy parts and learning how to do that is very much a journey that I'm still on. And also learning that I enjoy getting into that stuff, both the repulsive and the boring. Those are the two yeah. areas we have to deal with. And it turns out that I actually really enjoy being in the muck of both of those areas. I, I need some work on one of those. I can deal with the repulsive <laughs> and dig into a text, but I I have a harder time with like 
endless pages about which side of the wall you need to be on in order to eat. I feel that. I feel that. I Like I said, it's a very uh, visceral experience for me. The way I enjoy studying Talmud is just like, it's <laughs> it's fun. It's like popping bubble wrap, you know, or something like that, where it's just like, I like it for the sake of doing it. And luckily, there's all this other cool stuff I can say about why Talmud is good. But conveniently for enough for me, I just really enjoy it. I think the boring stuff is important because our religious world and our tradition is sort of defined by orthodoxy in a certain way. Even for those of us who are as far from orthodox as can be, we sort of have a conception, especially in in the West, about Judaism that to be orthodox is to sort of be the most Jewish Like that's like the most authentic form of Judaism that one can embody. And obviously I think that's a paradigm that really needs to be challenged. And we won't be able to do that, in my opinion, until we're able to really delve into the fundamental boring stuff that makes orthodoxy what it is, which is some of that what side of the wall to eat on. You know, like we have to be able to queer those things in order to make in my opinion, a lasting impact on the tradition. Because when you invent new parts of the tradition, which we've always been doing throughout history, the parts that tend to last generations into the future are the ones that are sort of grounded and spring forth from the pre-existing system. It's rare for an idea that is sort of new from whole cloth to last hundreds of years into the future. But if you can root it in the boring stuff, then you have a much better chance. Our Hebrew school homework this month was an iconic Next Generation episode, The Inner Light. It's mm-hmm. it's the Picard's flute episode. Right, right. I watched it. I watched it to prepare. And he experiences the whole life of, of this man in a dead civilization. And at the end of it, all that's left of that civilization is a story in his head and a, a flute in a box. Mm-hmm. So, um, I guess the Talmud is already, in a certain sense, you know, an attempt of, I guess, the rabbis thinking, maybe this is the end, let's write this stuff down quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, but if, if if you were preserving things of your tradition, what's what's in your story? And, and, and what's the object in the box? I think the fundamental thing that I want to see carried into the future about queer Talmud is sort of, we have this idea in the Sephara world that queer Talmud is about making people players. And by players, we mean like seeing ourselves as participants in the game of developing tradition rather than passive recipients of it. And if we could sort of preserve that confrontational, transformative attitude towards tradition, I think that will see us through all kinds of things in the future, you know? Whether we preserve our understanding of one particular text or not, I think is less important than whether we preserve like that essential Mm. nugget. I think the object in the box would have to be, gosh, I think, I mean, I, right now I have my Jastro, which is like a, a Talmud dictionary that's very common. And on the front of my Jastro is a sticker of like um, a cop car that's being crushed by a D20 and set on fire. <laughs> and I just feel like that Jastro like contains some essence for me of what Queer Talmud is about. And I would want to send it into the future for people to look at. I like that. 
Right, because the flute, it's not it's not the history of the planet. It's like one person's experience on it. Right, exactly, exactly. Picard's journey of sort of like learning to play that flute parallels his journey of becoming a member of that civilization. And I think in a similar way, my journey in learning to play the Jastro and learning, you know, how to use it as a tool also parallels like my journey of seeing myself rather than on the outside of Jewish tradition, sort of having to like, I don't know, for a long time, I felt like because I was queer, because I was trans, like, I was always going to be having to just like accept and make work the sort of Judaism that exists rather than seeing myself as a participant and changing it. And I think that's a very similar journey Picard is on in the episode, sort of going from like, this is not my life. I am not accepting this to like, I'm going to try to solve this famine. I'm going to try to solve this, you know, supernova crisis. You know, it's a, a long journey from on the bench to being a player. Yeah. Chava, it's been so wonderful to chat with you. Where can our listeners find out more about you and the work you do? Uh, you can find out more about the podcast on patreon.com slash hi, how are you, which is where all of our material is. And you should just find me on Twitter. I'm at hi, how are you on Twitter. We're having a website made right now, but it doesn't exist yet. So Twitter is a great way to get a hold of me. Thanks. Yes, my pleasure. What a joy. I've been thinking recently about the wet bulb, and it's pretty scary stuff. So, all day, every day, the metabolic functions of our bodies are generating heat. But If our fragile human bodies get too hot, they start to break down, get above, say, 43 degrees Celsius, and you might not even survive. So our bodies regulate heat in two ways. One is just radiating, like if if we're hotter than our surroundings, some of that heat will transfer out, and our bodies are pretty good at using the vascular system to speed this up or down. And the other way is that we sweat. Sweat works in in a pretty neat way. We're not dripping hot water out. It's the process of evaporation of our skin that actually cools us. It's a process called heat of vaporization. And basically, it causes some of the energy in our body to transfer into the air as the sweat moves from liquid to gas form. Radiating heat requires that the environment around us be cooler than our body temperatures but not sweating. As long as sweat can evaporate off your skin, with enough drinking water and replacement salts, a healthy adult human can withstand pretty incredibly high temperatures. But what if that water has nowhere to go? Physicists call this the wet bulb. It's a saturation of humidity in the air so thick that air literally cannot absorb any more water, and so nothing can evaporate. It's like a sponge that's totally full. And most of us, you know, have experienced this on a level that we can kind of relate to, at least in a mild form. A super hot day with low humidity isn't so bad if you're in the shade. With a cold drink in your hand, it's actually kind of nice. But open the door on one of those thick as pea soup muggy days, even if it's only kind of hot, and you just feel like death. And death is exactly what I'm afraid of in the wet bulb, because... When these two phenomena combine, 
the body has no way to cool itself. Like, if the temperature outside your body is higher than body temperature and humidity is 100%, the human body cannot function without artificial cooling and you die in the shade with as much food and water as you can eat or drink. And luckily that doesn't happen so often on our planet. I mean, we would have adapted to it if that was the environment, right? It strikes once every year or so, briefly and in just a handful of locations. But that's going to change. By the later decades of this century, it's estimated that the devastating impact of climate change means that many locations on Earth will experience this regularly. In southern Mississippi and Louisiana, one to two times a year, maybe. Two or three times a year in northeastern China. And the one that scares me the most, three or more days a year in a belt of Pakistan and northern India that is home to more than 100 million people. And when these hit, people who are impoverished and vulnerable without access to air conditioning or other forms of artificial cooling are at great risk, and some of them will probably die. But the real danger is that if you pair the wet bulb days with an infrastructure disaster, like a, like a power outage and a water outage, the wet bulb death could lead to a mass casualty event, unlike anything we've ever seen before. And it occurs to me, too, that even without such a mass casualty event, these regions might become thought of as too dangerous to live in, creating a human migration on a scale that we've never seen before. And I don't know what our world looks like from that after. How a political crisis, a refugee crisis, spin out of that. I don't think our world is ending. But it's certain that danger lies ahead. And like Cayman, I don't know what our future holds. This isn't a call to action. It's a call to reflection. To think about the elements of our world, the elements of your life that that you would transmit if there was nothing else left to share. Came and left a flute in the box. What would you leave? Die. You saw it just before you came here. We hoped our probe would encounter someone in the future. Someone who could be a teacher. Someone who could tell the others about us. Oh, it's me. Larry Nemechek is a Star Trek archivist and writer. His Star Trek The Next Generation companion is the definitive production guide to TNG. He's also contributed to the Star Trek Star Charts and dozens of other reference projects. He hosts The Trek Files, a podcast that examines primary Trek sources from the Roddenberry Archives and Trekland, a regular series of deep dive Trek interviews. Larry Nemechek, Dr. Trek, welcome to Star Trek and the Jews. Well, thank you. This was, you know, when you first contacted me, I said, now, you know, I'm not Jewish, but then, <laughs> that is true but then of you many told of me guys. your topic today. <laughs> 
And uh, but it all makes sense. It's good. Good on you. Good for having the show. Yeah. I think I, I mentioned this to you in my email, but I spent like I can't tell you how many nights as a ten year old flashlight under the blanket reading through. <laughs> I had the blue cover first edition. Only only goes to okay. season six. Yeah. Season five. Season five, right. Yay for you and your 10-year-old <laughs> self. Maybe 10 years ago, I started to hear people say that, you know, like you, this was the first book I spent my own money on, you know, or this was the best Christmas present I ever had when I was 10 or eight or 12. And I was like, oh, okay. But then it felt weird at first. But then after that, it was like, it was like, it was great. And only weird because I didn't think about, you know, being like an old man, <laughs> but it was cool. It was totally cool. It's the way I thought about Dorothy's concordance and um, Dorothy. I mean, I'm sorry, B. Joe's concordance, you know, in the tech yeah. manual and and the guy's medical reference and all of that. It's the way those early books that were classics felt to me mm-hmm. and the making of Star Trek, you know. Yeah. So it was I was it was like from that perspective, it was an honor to be in that club. It was kind of amazing to be in that. Club. I've been listening to uh, to the Trek file since its inception. And, and I think it's a really wonderful concept. There's something like like very Talmudic about it. You start with a, with a source text and then you have this, this dialectic about its meaning. Um, and depending on, on the week, you know, you might fall anywhere in this spectrum of a person who's hearing the context of this document for the first time to a person who was in the room when, when the context of it was, was being discussed. Or who wrote it. Right. And, and so why do you think it's important to, uh, to preserve Star Trek's history in, in that manner? And, and what are you hoping to learn you know, from this process of, of sitting with primary documents? Well, for one thing, it says something about Star Trek that not only is there a demand that people want to know this, because, because Star Trek has been if, if Star Trek was a flash in the pan, if Star Trek was a failure, if it was a show that went 13 episodes and nobody cared. There's no time tunnel files. Yeah. So Star Trek is a show that... In the 70s, it came back from the dead, and it's the first time anything that happened. So it's a paradigm starter there. No, I'm sorry. This went three years and done. Be good with it and move on. No, people don't want that. People got something out of that that should not go away. And the whole first generation of fandom was about making that point and having it relive mm-hmm. some way, either as a series or a movie. And, of course, it finally came back as a movie after all the dancing around the 70s. And then, you know, and by that time, there had to be a second one and a third because they kept making money. And then by that time, the stations or the local stations are saying, can we please have more than these 80 hours? Can we have new shows? And how do you do that? I mean, it's all the things that Star Trek was inventing and doing a new paradigm. You know, no, we're not going to reboot it. Now, today, we'd say that we're going to extend the extend the universe and, and, you know, we'll, we'll honor Kirk, Spock and McCoy, but we're going to go 80 years in the future. And that will account for the change in production looks and you know the all those things that star trek pioneered including just the fandom at the beginning that fandom explosion out of the beginning you know the tech manual was the number one on the new york times bestseller list for like 15 16 Uh, weeks that was pretty good for a dead show and that made people you know the dollar sign people the bean counters stood up and looked oh wait it's not just crazy kids there's money to be had in that you know i mean it on all the levels it got respect you know, and and helped helped um, you know Star Wars secure its loans mm-hmm. to be finished. So you know, there's that star. That's why this Star Trek Star Wars rivalry is so funny to me because there's a synergy there, really, that that kicked it off. Yeah, and in both directions. Star Wars's lightning bolt success is what finally made Paramount, you know, 
get off the pot and go make a, a Star Trek resurrection finally, you know, as a, as a piece of competition. But it, it was the way that so I don't know. Star Trek's always been amazing. And over the years, it's reinvented itself a little bit, but it's still it's of all the franchises that we have out there today. And Star Trek was the first one that was a big one, a media franchise, we used to say. Star Trek, you know, opened Comic-Con culture up yeah. when it was just the kids who were barely out of the closet with it. And now the geeks won on all on all fronts and it's no big deal. But that's what's amazing about Star Trek. And among all those franchises, it's the one that has held the tightest to its backstory. They don't recast every three years like Spider-Man or Batman mm-hmm. or something, you know, and uh, Star Wars is kind of close to it. But, you know, people debate that, but they're they're doing a good job of keeping to the look. Doctor Who, it's in the DNA to be reinvented every few years. So that's not a problem. But Star Trek is the one out of all those that really tries to accept and and keep its canon look and its canon concept going. Yeah. And I think that's what makes it special. And that is why, finally, back to your question, that's why, A, people care. B, there is a market for people to care, both just as consumers of the information and then people that will pay money to get it. And have it be, you know, preserved in mind and archived and that it matters. And people that were there, not just the actors and the pretty faces and the charisma, and we love them, but the people that gave them their words and gave them their rooms and their spaceships and their sound effects and all of that. Mm-hmm. And, and not just what came out to the screen, but what didn't come to the screen and what almost came to the screen, but didn't. And what used to not come to the screen, but now it does or now it can. You know, all those things just make it richer. You can get even deeper by knowing all that. Part of it's just the clock ticking. Mm -hmm. There was a little bit of that done for the original series, but we've lost so many of those voices and faces. A lot of them are in print, but, you know, nothing is true now unless it's on camera. It's also, I don't want to say it's a race against time to get some of this, but it's like, let's, you never know what's going to happen. And to have these primary creatives and not just the creatives at the top of the heap, but people all the way down who who have an insight in the way things were and can give you, you know, maybe an angle on something you didn't know. Sometimes it's like a big mystery. Sometimes it's just one more layer in the lasagna, but that's why it's important. And very, it's an honor for Star Trek for people to care about this. And it's an honor for the people that work on the show. I mean, if you're working on, I don't know, if you're working on my living doll, you, I mean, if you worked on Star Trek, you never thought people 50 years from now would be caring right now. They know that. And they have that sense of history with them. But there's still people that still I've heard stories about some of the modern crew when people go up to talk to them and they the fans who see a name in the credits and associate it with what they like, whether that's accurate all the way or not. People are still thrown because people think they're still anonymous if they're like in the second assistant cameraman or something or they're the whatever third prop master. And they don't get it that fans who enjoy something are looking or watching out for that. Yeah, and that's that's what I've I've tried to do that preserve that be the person in the room that asked the questions I wanted to ask because early on you'd see and again you love the actors and maybe you read something with a writer but it was never as deep as you wanted to go and all those other people you almost never heard from them and now you do but even as good a job as documenting as CBS and Paramount are doing now with the modern shows and having a camera around to document they still don't go all the way down and they still don't dig down to the detail just because you're the owner doesn't always, you know, you've got you're they're juggling everything else, the production, and they're not always the best documenters. 
And again, they're doing a much better job now because they're thinking about feeding the social media monster, you know, as well as long-term things. But there's still so much happening that there's areas not covered or forgotten about or things you don't realize are important until 10 years go by. Right. And you go, oh, I wish we'd thought to ask so-and-so about this at the moment. That's anyway, that's what we're trying to do. Or is the years go by, get to those folks. And that's, that's one of my hobbies is getting, when I have the keys <laughs> to the magazine or to a website or whatever, you know, it's official or if it's my own doing, that's what I'm, that's what I'm trying to do. You know, TV is a, is a collaborative art project and mm-hmm. memories change. People's recollections of events can change in a, in a minute, let alone Absolutely. 55 years. And the history of Star Trek has contradictory. There, <laughs> there's a, there's a wide spectrum between the great bird of the galaxy and chaos on the bridge. And, mm-hmm. and something I like in your interviews is that you have a lot of restraint and you are not in the habit of telling people that their recollection of events is is wrong. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, some of this is just when we are dealing with people, it's things have been 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 years ago. Now, if, if you listen just recently to Ralph Sinensky, who is amazing, yeah. you know, he'll say, well, Gerald Ireland was uh, sick on that Thursday. So on Friday, we had, you know, he'll remember the day of the week. And it's amazing. Of course, the thing, the, the further back you go with the, the series especially with the original series, whether they're actors or writers or directors or whatever, the idea, especially the actors, especially the guest actors, the idea that they've had this 30, 40, 50 year career, maybe doing hundreds of roles, but it was those two days or those three days they worked on Star Trek out of 40 years, right? That's the thing they get asked about over and over and over again, whether you're William Wyndham or you're Michael Forrest, mm-hmm. you know, or whoever, Arlene Martell, it was to bring, I mean, you know, it's like all the roles you did, what's the one that, um, you know, that you get asked about? And it has to be a, you know, and so many, they, so many of them are hardworking actors and they never got to be a regular. They never got the next, you know, step up in fame, but they do the signing shows. They do conventions and they do the little signing shows where they just autograph pictures. All They have fans come out of the woodwork who do remember them. And now they kind of, you know, after the first, the original series, from next gen on well next gen they didn't know how you know it was a sequel Mm -hmm. and oh my god bonanza the next generation was a flop and ridiculous and you know what's going to happen here with this and no one knew it was going to go more than a year even though that's what they planned for the actors all thought it wouldn't go longer than a year but after ds9 onward people had a clue that unless something was just a complete flop what they were doing was important to people and that it would still be important to people 10 20 30 40 50 years and not that they carried that around like oh my god i can't do i'm double thinking and triple thinking everything before i do it they worked and did the job and the creatives designed and built you know along with that and wrote but in the back of their mind they know yeah that's what's going to happen and um and that's what the current crop you know are are faced with too the Trek Files is all about documents. Do you ever feel like there's a is there a white whale document that you're that you're out there for? Is oh. <laughs> there a piece of paper that like you you would love to have in your hands, whether it exists or not? Yes. Let me. Let me I mean, I'm, I I know there are some like that because we. So here's what's happened. Originally, the Trek Files began, and it wasn't my idea. John Champion and Rod Roddenberry came to me about doing this. Like, here's all these papers that are not in even the library, like the donation to UCLA, Mm -hmm. right? There's tons of that that's here that's just sitting in files. And even if we scanned it and we had an instant holographic library, that's still hard to penetrate. Like, how do you open that up and air it out? 
and that was, you know, that basically it was it was uh, Rod and John's idea. And they asked me if I would host it and then part of the, and have people talk about it. And what I wanted to do was have people talk. I wanted to do something different that was not just more of the same. I didn't just want to pile on among the ideas that I was thinking about doing. And back then it was like going doing a camera show. I thought, you know what they're offering? Rod's offering. No one else is going to have access to this. So it'll be access in my interpretation you know, in tandem with them, but uh, of what to do with the, I, I read, I pull something out of a file and I go, oh my God, we can do this with this, or this is so relevant to today. Now, who do I get to talk about it? And we've kind of the last year or two also had people show up like the good friend of uh, like Grace Lee Whitney's son or the good friend of Angelique Pettyjohn that did a biography of her. There's nobody else around to talk for this person now, aside, mm-hmm. aside from, you know, Grace Lee's son or, or Angelique's best friend who was an author doing a book about her in her orbit for many years and helped her get to conventions and is writing the book. So we, we've come around to not only just finding files and now let's do a show and find someone to talk about it. Now we've got, here's people, let's find an excuse to get into their subject matter, but let's do justice to our format too. Let's pull, let's find a file that'll be fun to talk about. And it's our springboard to talk with them. So we kind of, you know, are coming at it from both ways. And I th- and both of them are wonderfully valid. And both of them are are getting, you know, are airing out the archive. Yeah. And and of course, part of it, I, I didn't even think about it at the time at the beginning. It was all about, you know, Star Trek stuff and let's talk about it with someone who has a, you know, either back then or someone from one of the current shows that looks at a predecessor, like an editor, you know, or a visual effects or a writer. And, you know, and, and good Lord, we had Dorothy on several, Dorothy Fontana on several times. I'm so glad before yeah. we you know, lost her. Yeah. And Richard Arnold was on a couple, a few times before we lost him. Well, some of them are just for fun. Like when John and I do the fan letters to Gene, you know, from the different times. Angry 10-year-olds with, with yeah, grievances yeah, yeah. to air. <laughs> but the, the, the other part of this is what I didn't realize at the beginning. And now I got back to it here was it's very valuable. And the more you stay engaged with, you get out of your rut online in, in your own personal fandom circle. That's one thing. And it's, sh- and it was so more apparent, even more so in the pandemic when you're relying on social media. And if you get out of your comfort zone or your comfort circles and you see what other people are talking about, it's not just what other people are talking about. It's what other people, other ages are talking about. It's what other, you know, ethnicities and cultural groups are talking about. And everybody has a different slant. This is supposed to be Star Trek. It's supposed to be idic, right? Infinite diversity, infinite combinations. It's amazing how often people forget that, whether sometimes it's just accidentally <laughs> or it seems like they're actively working on it. But the biggest one by far seems to me to be generationally. We all have generational perspectives because how did we grow up? Did we grow up with three channels and go outside and play, you know, and nobody's watching you? <laughs> or did we grow up, you know, you're glued to your screen too long, kid. Get off of that. And go. I mean, you know, everybody's got a different worldview and generations come up with the same worldview. And everybody comes to Star Trek at a different time. And everybody comes to, did you watch NBC original series? Did you watch it as a rerun baby like me? Did you watch it later on when it became painful to watch because it was so 60s and so stylized? And the bottom line to that is just communicating. And one of the things is cultural and also technological and media. And when we when we do fan letters, say, it's like, hey, guys, these are kids writing on notebook paper with pencils, sticking it in an envelope and a stamp, you know, whether their parents were helping them or not. They're not just 
Twittering at somebody, you're like, okay, bang, I can get a, I can get a screen and some keys. And now I'm in contact with the person I'm writing. And so kind of me and other people. So it's just, and it's not that one is better or worse. They're different. And the generation today, I always try to lay out gently, just reminding everybody where the world was, you know, like, and here's the extra layer here. So I never thought about that in the beginning, but we always try to put the media you know, the cultural and media focus to things as we talk about too. Because one thing I don't want Trek Files to be is just dusty history for the fun of it. Mm-hmm. I want as much as we can to make things relevant to today. And some of that is showing how different things are. And some of that is showing exactly how it's the same. You have a story by credit on the the Voyager episode, Prophecy, an episode which actually has a real element of um, passing down traditions and thinking about uh, texts in new light. And it's a fun Klingon romp that that actually has had like an interesting I I wonder if like that episode was in Brian Fuller's mind there's like a Kuvama to Kuvma kind of a similarity there as Discovery was being developed so tell me about how, how that episode came to be well it's not at all the story you think so my wife Janet we moved to LA from Oklahoma in 1994 after as we were working on the the red edition for generations in 94 oh a long time before that episode came out oh right 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 but as we were this is way before that but not before it was conceived because the thing is we moved to LA and Janet went from a temp job at Star Trek and proved her trustworthiness and her metal and worked in with the writers uh, she was the assistant script coordinator on Voyager and uh, worked under Lolita Fajo, uh, not as her assistant, like, you know, answering the phone and making appointments, but she had uh, work to do. And when Lolita would be gone, she would fill in for that job. And they had uh, Bob Gillen, for the most part, was the same job on Voyager and did the same. And they would all fill in for each other because it was such a workload. But she was there for five years, five seasons. And everyone knew me. I had been doing interviews increasingly since 92. And had come out on several trips before we moved. And that was part of the reason why we decided to move. And Star Trek was taking off. Obviously, we had DS9, we had Voyager. And it was like, oh, the sky's the limit. Yeah, she. so it was kind of like a courtesy. They were taking pictures from everybody and everything. And people were sending in spec scripts. They had Michael Pillar's open script submission policy. And as just a courtesy, it was kind of like we knew we had, and Janet's working in the offices every day, and I'm there two or three times a week, maybe, and trusted people in the franchise and can deal with, you know, now it would be everybody signed an NDA, but back then it was like, you're trusted. And if you do something that's not trusty, then Rick will have you banned from the lot. I mean, that was the NDA of the night. We said we'd like to pitch and we went off and listened to everybody that told us what to do and how to do it and come up with story ideas and I had interviewed people talking about how nervous they were pitching and how that, you know, the, the freelance writers and the freelancers that became, you know, successful and got on, on staff. So we went off and worked on five or six ideas, very hard, took a couple of weekend retreats and then came in and pitched them. We practiced pitched them to Lolita Fajo. We had Jerry and just Jerry Taylor. And we, you know, all our great ideas we'd worked so hard on. We work on all of these, all of these. And at the end of it, we needed one more. And I was like, well, you know, Balan is half clean. And this is this is baby steps. This is when they were first shooting the show and it had not aired yet. Hmm. So in the September, October ish window before the premiere in January. But we knew what was, you know, Janet's working on the show and she's sharing that with me. And I'm, you know, I'm staying mum about it. Not only where things were in the Bible, in the writer's guide, but even what had started to evolve after two and three and four and five episodes. And I said, you know what, we've got, look, you've got a half Klingon character and they've already, they're starting to give her, you know, kind of self-loathing her Klingon side a little bit. 
we, we let's just do a stupid they find Klingons in the Delta Quadrant and we can make it about we can make, make that be a great expander of the universe. Like one of the ways the original Klingon, the Kirk era Klingons tried to contain the Federation was to send out generational ships you know, to kind of outflank them. And Voyager finds some, but they're old school Klingons and they're subjugating planets as they go. And, and then we find out at the end, it's a Balana story and she's the focal point. And she she hates being assigned to them. First, the Klingons don't believe that there's been, a, a you know, the Kittimer Accords and they're at peace and detente. And they try to fight and then they get over that and then they don't trust them, but they do. And, and they suppose they say, yes, 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 we'll get along. And Janeway assigns Balana over. She doesn't want to go because she doesn't like indulging her Klingon side, but then she does. And then as she works with their engineer, oh my God, she starts falling for him. And he's using her to get to, they they still secretly want to take over the sheep even that's it's a hundred years past them, their technology level, because they're Klingons and they can do anything. He falls for her and she falls for him, even as he's doing his own mission. And then when Balana finds out about that, she's really whipsawed because first she, you know, she went against her will and she wanted to do it. And then she did. Then she enjoyed it. Then she found out she'd been used. And at the time we knew there was some kind of a latent attraction, either her and and, uh, Robbie, her and Tom Paris or her and Chakotay. Because in one episode, she talks about uh, uh, Cathexis. It sounds like she has kind of a thing for Chakotay. It's it's like, look at this, look at the ship. Who's going to be? You know, and but Tom Paris was troubled and she's kind of troubled. So at the end of it, we were going to either have Chakotay or Tom Paris confront her. And at the end, she had to either kill her Maquis people and go with the Klingons or kill her Klingon guy and stay with Voyager. And that's how it originally ended. The Klingons don't want to come with them or surrender or give up and they just leave them with their old aging technology to go on their way or whatever. But with the knowledge that as we went back toward Earth in the Alpha Quadrant. Oh, they're going to be dotted. Yeah. And then, so, and we did it as a bottle show. Very simple. Like, look, just use all your Klingon sets, Klingon costumes. It'll be cheap. And then they did it. They bought it. We were like, woohoo. And this was in December before the pilot aired. And then immediately after, they said, well, you know what? We've just done faces where Bellana is split in two. Let's put it off a year. And then a year later went by and they said, well, you know what? We've, we've started to say that we've had, we've had Romulans. We've had Ferengi. This is starting to feel like not the crazy distant, you know, it's too familiar already. So we're going to hold it off a year with Klingons. Okay. And then it's like, oh, well, you know, they just had Worf and the Klingons come to DS9 and that's a big deal. And we don't want to look for copycatting. And after about the third year delay, I was, I look at Janet and I said, you know, they paid us for the story. Yay. But they're never going to make this. And, and we knew there are lots of, not lots, but there's probably five or 10 stories a year that are bought that are, they either try or they just never, the initial thought doesn't gel, right? Mm-hmm. And they just fall or whoever liked it at first is gone. So it it went away. We got paid for it. When they did the um, fifth, the the whatever anniversary happened, the 30th anniversary, Ira and the writers took out a big uh, ad and they put anybody who'd ever sold a story to Voyager was an ad in Hollywood Reporter and Variety. You know, there's 50, 60, 80 people in this ad. And we felt very honored to be in there, although people had no idea why we were there. And then the last season of the show, when Brandon went off to uh, Jerry retired, Brandon show ran it for two years. And then for the last season, Brandon and Rick were working on what became Enterprise. And and Ken Biller, who'd been a rookie writer the first season, he was um, show running it, really, the last year. And I think he was trying to go back through the closet and see what all had been bought to look at everything again, because... I went by at the beginning of the year after a hiatus to say hi to people 
And Ken's, I said, hi. And Ken said, oh, well, Larry, hey, I was going to, I was going to email you or call you. Do you have any records of those, that story you sold us in the first season? Because I was trying to find it in the archives and we couldn't find it. So I was like, I try, I didn't scream and I didn't, you know, let on. I was like, yeah, I, I think we've got of course, somewhere. We, of course we have it. I can tell you right where it is. So I brought in everything we had on our original pitch. And after the pitch, Michael had come, Michael Pillar, before he left the show, wanted to blow it up into a big two-parter. And instead of having it be a bottle show, you know, simple show, have it be, the, we found Klingons who had subjugated and c- create a whole alien new race in the Delta Quadrant that they had subjugated. And that we were like, ooh, these are 100-year-old Klingons and they were fighting us. And we were trying to liberate the planet and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he wanted to make up an alien language for the subjugated, you know, have subtitles and that whole, have his, have that be his goodbye show. And I know he, that's the mood he was in when they did basics, because that's exactly what basics is. It's like, you know, the Kazon capture the thing, come down on this planet. They make up an alien planet for the captured people, the Hanon, the Hanonians. <laughs> so you could tell, but we didn't, that, that happened. It lingered, it lingered a year later. When before we totally gave up on it, Janet looked at Jerry and said, can we like make another pass on our show? And Jerry said, yes, why don't you take it back to where it was before Michael blew it? Make it that simple show you had at the beginning. So we thought, okay, yay. But that, you know, then Jerry retired and it sat there and sat there. So Ken pulled it off the dead pile, the dead pile of bought stories. And they did it. But by that time, of course, Bellana was not a single girl. Different place character wise. And And Tom had been in this, you know, so we couldn't have that at play. But ba- so basically, the show you saw was what do we do? We find Klingons, the Delta Quadrant, and Bellana is the crux of the story. Right. Because the show grew up, you know, it was six years later. We had baby characters when we did ours, but we guessed right. We guessed right <laughs> of who she would wind up with at the end. And so that, so all the Kuvama and all the bits, you know, and, and uh, uh, Neelix and his, and his Klingon friend. Right. I mean, all those bits and pieces were all, if you look at it, there's six names on, you know, they were, they were very nice to keep us on the story credit because those names you see are how the residuals pie is sliced up. So on one hand, we didn't split a whole check, which was a long shot to happen at best, but they could have, after six years, could have bumped us off and, and just split it between the other, you know, two on the story and two on the teleplay of the staff, but they didn't. So I'll always be grateful to Ken and the, and them for doing that. But uh, that's why I say when people talk about uh, prophecy, I was, you want to hear about prophecy or do you want to hear about reflections, which was kind of the name of our, (laughs) of our story. But, and that story is not unique. That happens over and over again, all the years that they took outside pitches, whether it was a student in Iowa or a a letter carrier in Arizona, or it was people that the staff knew, you know, they were inside the circle at Star Trek, but there's lots of you know, stories that were bought and never came and people times that they'd work and work on a story or a script over and over and over again. It was one called the Q Olympics on next generation that Q basically doubled the crew hmm. <laughs> for, I forget now the gist of it, but they tried and tried and tried and tried to make it work for like two and three and four years and they never could. So they finally gave up on it, but you know, that just happens. And that's, but all of these stories this is what, when you've watched an episode 10 times and you've heard the three stars and maybe one of the writers even talk about it and you want to know more, there is so much more. These are the layers. Yeah. There's so much more you can know because you had, whether they were a writer producer or they were the second assistant, you know, snack table person, everybody has, has an insight on, on that. And, you know, some people, I found this out interviewing people. Some people are wonderful at memory and some people it's all, you know, five years later, things are a blur. 
And some people have very specific stories. So you love those people. But even the people that it's a blur, if you can pull out photos, you know, then it, it rejogs the memory and, you know, it kind of loosens up the gears and they, they have good memories. So that's from the years of interviewing. But that's with what you said at the beginning, people's memories blur. And if you can have call sheets, if you can have photos, if you can have, you know, even memos and things, much less if you've got drafts of stories, it's for you and you can do that. So that, yeah, when you're interviewing someone who's got a 40-year-old memory, it may not alter the story tremendously. You don't want to sit there and, you know, poke them if they happen to misremember something wrong incorrectly. Sometimes you realize that you've made an assumption about something and they correct you about it. Or sometimes that's where the best stuff is that you you come in with what everybody has assumed for 40 years. And Andrea Weaver, who was the second and third season woman's costumer on the original series, says, no, we knew it was green gold. We knew that wasn't gold fabric. And we knew it looked goldish, but I'll still call that command green or command olive, you know, that old controversy. So, so that's why it's good to get all this aired out come in with what you can do. And yes, when you're live interviewing someone, you don't want to like poke them. <laughs> Even when it was a private interview that I was recording, I'll never forget when Renee Echevarria wrote, wrote Dark Page. Oh yeah. So the whole thing was about, you know, Mr. Holm is not in the story. It's only Loxana and uh, Deanna. And then people confused, you know, who was who, but the real life young girl and then her sister that she didn't know she had and the actress that played her. And anyway, it, the whole thing depends on Deanna writing home for documents and photos of Kestra for Mr. Holm. But if you go back to Haven, the first time Deanna met Mr. Holm was when he comes aboard with Loxana for her wedding, right, to Wyatt Miller. And she looks at, looks at her mother and looks at Mr. Holm and she says, what happened to Mr. Zelo? And her mother says, oh, he had pornographic thoughts of me. I had to fire him. So the first time Deanna meets Mr. Holm is on that ship. So the fact that Mr. Holm would have documents from before times and they could talk about the years. So anyway, it goes by. It doesn't bother anybody. But at the end of the year, I was doing my end of the year sit down with Renee and we got through talking about it. And I said, so, OK, so one question, I guess Deanna, like Mr. Holm assumed all the family records from Mr. Zelo because he was new when Deanna met him in Haven and Renee just got that look on his face. You're like, oh. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, a wizard did it. I, I, I guess this is why we have you around, Larry. <laughs> and that was pretty... Now, today, there'd be a million people on Twitter and it would be like 24 hours later, it would be on the 15 things they got wrong on last night's episode. You know, the YouTube and Twitter culture would be all over it. Which is great, but there's times when I miss having a few days or a few months to talk about, you know, get this stuff together. So there's, you know, that's, yes, it's not, it's never pleasant to jump in someone's face about something like that. But, you know, if you're nice about it, it's still a question and you want to know, whoa. And then, and then, like I say, texture, not trivia. If it's an error or a mistake, then, then come up with an in-universe reason for it. Larry, thank you so much for your time. Uh, where can people get to know more about you and your projects? Uh, Larry Nemechek.com is kind of the central hub, but most of my social is Larry Nemechek's Trekland, Facebook and YouTube and Instagram. I love it if people, would, I got into the YouTube race a little late, so I'd love it if people would go like and subscribe at YouTube. My YouTube channel has both of the live stream shows from Trekland Tuesdays Live, and thank you for mentioning that. And also Life Support Live, which in the pandemic I started doing on Saturdays. It's a live show with Dr. Ali Matu. He's kind of a geek psychologist. And we call it uh, boldly going through uncertain times. So it's a mashup of Star Trek and, and mental health. 
hmm. in a low key fun way. We geek out a lot and have a lot of fun. And we have great audiences on both of the live shows. And then the Trek Files. And then Portal 47 is my business. And also the Trekland Treks. When you come to LA and want to do a day tour that's Star Trek related, get a hold of me and we'll work out it ahead of time. And um, I'll lead you on a day tour of location sites. You can have your own away mission. Bring your cosplay if you want. That's that's where life has gone since the old book and mortar days. Larry, thank you so much for your time. It's been great to chat with you. Josh, thank you so much for having me on and good luck with the show. Thanks for listening to Star Trek and the Jews. And uh, I hope that part in the middle wasn't too much of a bummer. Our opening fanfare is arranged by Dr. Adam Snyderman. Thank you to our guests, Chava de Cordova and Larry Nemechek. Your Hebrew school homework for next month is the season one original series episode, The Korbamite Maneuver. That episode is going to air Rosh Chodesh Tevet around the beginning of December. And I want to give a heads up that after next month's episode, we're going to take a little hiatus. Uh, More info on that soon. Stay well, everyone. Emergency! Do you read? Pentara Station, come in!